Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew and to chapter 6. We continue our wonderful study through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Let's give ourselves to the reading of God's Word. Matthew 6 and 19. Our Lord speaking, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of our Lord. I want us to begin tonight by doing a thought experiment. And I want to ask you, when I pause, to be brutally honest with yourself. Someone comes to you and totally unexpectedly but reliably tells you that you will be gifted with $5 million tax-free by the end of tomorrow afternoon. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the second thing that comes to your mind? (laughs) What are those things that come first to your mind and to your heart? Might those first thoughts reveal something about your heart's treasure? Might it reveal a focus on time versus eternity? Another way of saying this is, what are the controlling ambitions of your heart? When I say someone will gift you with five million dollars, The ambition that controls your heart will determine where those resources will go and for what purpose. The Christian's life-controlling ambition is to be God and eternity-centered. Hear it again. The Christian's controlling ambition is always more and more to be God and eternity-centered. Our eternal hope must always overlay and control our material aspirations. Our text divides easily and well into three parts. There are two treasures, one earthly and one heavenly. There are two eyesights or two visions, 
one healthy and one bad. And there are two exclusive masters, God and a material view of life. Now, at the outset, we cannot live with both of those worldviews, both of those loves, both of those devotions simultaneously ruling in our hearts. Our hearts are made for worship. They are made to serve. They are made to treasure. Read verse 21 again with me. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Jesus is making it fundamentally clear that either the Lord is our treasure or this world is our treasure. Do you remember uh, the singer-songwriter, at least for my generation, Bob Dylan? What was one of his famous gravelly songs? You gotta serve somebody. You have to. There was discussion about whether or not Bob Dylan had become a believer at one point in his life. And this was after, when he wrote that song, was after that discussion was taking place. You have to serve somebody. The heart is made that way. It's crafted by God. It's factory installed by God. And so our focus tonight is to dive into these three parts. Two treasures, two visions, and two masters. First, the two treasures. The Lord calls us to compare the durability of two types of treasure. Read verses 19 and 20 with me again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust, uh, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. The first thing that I want you to notice is that there is a command here. The command is do not lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures that are heavenly. There's a clear and powerful call by our Lord to lay up treasures. But I want you to notice that the command comes in the form of both a negative and a positive. Let's look at the negative first. Earthly treasures, our Lord says, are fleeting, they're corruptible, they're insecure, they're able to fly away without warning. And because they are that way, we are bid, we are commanded not to put our trust in them. Now let me say by way of and aside for a moment here, nowhere does Jesus forbid private property or industry on our part in our labor and our finances. There are those in certain circles inside of Christendom and outside of Christendom that point to passages like this and tell us that there is no such right as personal property. There is no such right as industry in the sense of classic um, economic principles. But our Lord does not forbid private property nor capitalism in the classic sense of wealth creation by the application of equity to an opportunity. The Lord never denies that, nor does anywhere in Scripture. 
To the contrary, the ant is praised as an example of industrious preparation. The believer who refuses to care for his or her family and refuses to prepare to do so is called worse than an unbeliever. What is forbidden is the view that material things are to be self-oriented, self-centered, and self-serving. Do not lay up for, look at the language, yourselves treasures on the earth. This is a prohibition against extravagant, luxurious, self-oriented accumulation of the bigger and the bigger and the bigger, always for self and always for now. Dr. John Stott wrote this powerful several sentences. The Lord is speaking against the hardness of heart which does not feel the colossal need of the world's underprivileged people. It does not see the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions. And it does not see the materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. When I heard his phrase, tethers our hearts to the earth, how many of you played tetherball when you were growing up? It's a wonderful game, isn't it? You get that ball going and it just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. But guess what? In tetherball, it, it never differs. It always ends up in the same place with a ball wrapped up on the rope around the tree, around the pole, right next to the pole. Nothing ever changes. And so is the human heart that is tethered to the earth. It winds up always in the same dark place. And so this is not a prohibition against careful thought and planning for the future, but a warning against our covetous hearts. Now notice in verse 19 that Jesus uses strong images to reinforce the negative command. He talks about moths and rust destroying where thieves break in and steal. Now many of us may not have closets full of pure cashmere sweaters, but all of us, some of us, have a, have a wool sweater somewhere, and it's happened to most of us. You pull it out at the beginning of the coolest months of the year, and all of a sudden you notice that there's a big hole in your wool sweater. And the moths have gotten to it. Rust. I grew up in the Northeast where salt is used virtually every day of the winter on the roads. And if you have traveled there, you have noticed, you, you wonder if it is a third world country, all of the cars where the fenders are falling off and eaten with rust. It's just the way things are. Rust destroys. Material treasures are not lasting. They flee away in countless ways. Think about ancient cultures. They had no refrigeration. Salt, which was used as a preservative, was extraordinarily expensive. In the ancient Near East, at times, salt was used as currency. It was so valuable. In the ancient Near East, war, mice, worms, rust, and thieves made the material life of things utterly brief. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. Our Lord in, in John chapter 6 multiplies the bread. He has the conversation with the Jews about the bread of himself being the bread of life. And he says, do not work for food that does not endure to eternal life. And the day before, he had multiplied the loaves and the fish. And guess what was already happening to the loaves and the fish the very next day? It was rotting and it was molding. It was passing away. But the command moves from a negative to a positive. Rather, lay up treasures in heaven, which are secure and incorruptible. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus does not explain what these treasures are. There's no list that our Lord gives, and he says, this is a treasure you may keep, that is a treasure you must be rid of. That's not the point. In general, though, here's what I want you to hear. It is a growing Christ-likeness in character and deeds that our Lord is pointing to. A growing Christ-likeness of character and deeds that are these eternal treasures that the Lord would have us lay up. Now, Roger read the passage earlier, and that was on purpose. I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Take your Bible in hand and turn there to Colossians 3. Paul is doing something beautiful here. In Colossians 3, 1 through 17, let me just lay before you the outline. In verses 1 through 4, Paul is saying to us, Set your minds on things that are not earthly i.e., just what Jesus has said, set your mind on heavenly things. Then in verses 5 through 9, Jesus tells us what are those earthly things that must be put off. And then in verses 10 through 17, Paul tells us what are those things that must be put on. I want you to read through this text with me with that in mind. Verses 1 through 4, set your mind on things above. Paul says, if then you have been raised, resurrected with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. The verbal language here is that this is a death that has taken place in the past that has ongoing implications. We died in the past. The man who lives now is an altogether new man that once was not. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our mind is to be on things with an eternal bent to them. Verses 5 through 9, the things to put off, the, the, the old man, the clothing that is to be taken off and burned. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Notice that Jesus doesn't say material things. He says covetousness about material things, a heart 
that wants these to satisfy its worship, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these things you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have unclothed the old self with its practices. That's the verbal, literal translation. Unclothed yourself with its practices. And verse 10 through 17, things to be put on, and have put on, clothed, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, in verse 14, our English words, put on, is the imperative verb to clothe. It is supplied in the text. So the great contrast that Jesus is setting before us is between two treasures, a passing, Christless materialism versus the wealth of our character and service in our newness in Christ. That's what we are to be putting on. And Jesus cuts to the chase in verse 21. Again, read it with me, going back to our text. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now your heart runs downhill like water to what it treasures. So most simply put, your heart's devotion is going to be found kneeling at the foot of whatever you treasure. So whatever you treasure, that's where your heart will kneel. That's what our Lord is saying. So the question for us tonight in the challenge of verses 19 and 20 from our Lord is are we by faith in the daily fight to treasure Christ and his kingdom foremost? Or are we consistently lapsing into settling for the treasures and the comforts and the peace that will pass away that this world is offering? There are but two ultimate treasures for the soul to value, and we are to invite the Holy Spirit to frisk our souls. Let me give you um, a phrase from a gentleman named G. Campbell Morgan, a, a marvelous minister of the gospel. He was the predecessor to Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. His work is always valuable to read. Listen to how he puts it. You, Christian, belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on the earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, 
You have made a fortune and have stored it in a place where you cannot keep it. Make your fortune, but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of that great new morning when the old earth passes from you. Make your fortune there. You belong to the infinite. I think that's beautiful. We are not to be chained to the temporal in anything, but always to see the temporal through the lens of the Master, His kingdom, and eternity. Well, that's the first contrast that the Lord sets before us, two treasures. But there is a second contrast. The Lord speaks of two eyesights or two types of vision. The Lord moves from a comparison of two treasures to a comparison of two conditions of eyesight. Read with me verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, of course, our Lord is speaking in a metaphor here. He is telling us that the eye is like a lamp into the body. If our eyes are healthy, the body can see and function well. But if our eyes are blinded, then our body is plunged into darkness and confusion and even danger. But how does the metaphor connect in spiritual terms? One of our pastor scholars, I think, nails it. He writes this, The argument goes like this, Just as our eyes affect our whole body, so our ambition, where we fix the eye of our heart, affects our whole life. Just as a seeing eye gives light to the body, so a noble and single-minded ambition to serve the Lord and others brings meaning to life and throws light on everything that we do. And just as blindness leads to darkness, so an ignoble and selfish ambition plunges us into moral darkness. It makes us inhumane, ruthless. It deprives our life of true, ultimate significance. It is really a question of vision. When we have physical vision to see what we are doing and where we are going, all is well. So too, if we have spiritual vision, our spiritual perspective is correctly adjusted and our life is filled with purpose and fruit. But if our vision becomes clouded by the God of materialism and we lose sense of our true values, then the whole life is plunged into darkness. When the light of Christ and His grace is diffused in our hearts, we see as we ought and we live as we ought. Jeff Elliott, our dear brother in Christ, one of our pastors here years ago, used to speak of spiritual halitosis. You know, halitosis, bad breath when you wake up in the morning. 
He said, every believer every day wakes up with spiritual halitosis. You wake up with the bad breath of a soul that for a season was asleep and wakes up with a renewed need for a new vision of what my life is meant to be. And therein it is so important that we are daily with the Lord. And I am one among you, as many of us, who find that it is so easy to fill our days with responsibilities, even good responsibilities, and come to the end of the day before we have really trafficked with God personally. Let's not do that. It is blinding. It produces darkness. It diminishes our joy, our holiness wanes, worldliness overtakes. And so a worldview of material fulfillment will lead us to great darkness, our Lord is saying. Well, that was our second contrast, and then our Lord closes our text with a third contrast. The Lord contrasts two exclusive masters. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Our Lord makes a powerful declaration that the human heart is fashioned by him in such a way as to be able to have only one master, one love, one devotion, one controlling, consuming passion. Now, if you have the ESV, I want you to look in your text at verse 24 at the word can and cannot. Look at it with me. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. The root word for our English word can here means able. It is more often translated power. What Jesus is quite literally saying is, no one has the power to serve two masters. And the last phrase, you do not have the power to serve God and money. Our hearts simply, by virtue of how they are crafted and made by God, do not have the power to serve two masters simultaneously. Jesus declares that it is not simply hard to serve two masters, it is impossible. Why? Because we will only be able to be devoted to one and to love one master, and we will hate and despise the other. Whichever master our heart deems more worthy that is the master that will get our service. Hear that again. Whatever our heart deems by way of master as more worthy, that is the master that our heart will serve. And Christ makes the options stark and clear. It will either be the Lord or mammon. Now, some of your translations will use the word money, and that's quite uh, 
an accurate translation. Mammon is a Semitic word which means possessions or wealth or more mundanely money. Now, masters do not permit divided loyalties in their servants. And what Jesus Christ is telling his people and his church and he's telling the Jews who were listening to him is that you cannot say to me that you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and give me that lip service and then live your life as if I did not exist. It's a fundamental impossibility that those two things can be simultaneously true. And virtually the entire Old Testament is one long redemptive narrative of God calling a people to himself, wooing them with his worth, calling them out of a divided double-mindedness into an exclusive covenantal bond of affection and service. That's an extended definition of the Old Testament. At its root... Jesus, the eternal Son of God, tells us that this is the question of who is worthy of our worship and our service. It is the question of the heart of a man and a woman being capable only of one great love, one controlling passion, one master, one who is worthy of undivided allegiance. Now, when I use the proper name Dagon. Does that bring anything to mind? I want to take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and just listen. What's happening is that the Philistines have captured the ark of God. As was common in the ancient Near East, when you defeated another nation or city-state, you took their physical gods, the manifestation, the idols of their gods, and you put them in the temple of your God in a, an inferior position. To say to your worshipers and to say to your God, see, you are the supreme one. 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set, up, set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. What are we hearing? What are we seeing? Dagon's head was gone. His arms and his hands were gone. He's powerless. He is no God. He passes away. Might I say, if I can import the New Testament back into this passage, this was materialism unmasked. It 
cannot survive in the presence of God. One will die and one will truly live. The human heart and God's people, those of us who are here tonight, only has room for the true God. God will not share his throne nor his glory with any Dagon for our heart's allegiance. I close with a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. When you visit your physician, he asks a series of questions in order to diagnose your condition. When Jesus conducts his diagnosis of our condition in this passage, he also asks questions. Where is your treasure? On what is your spiritual vision focused? Who is your master? Our answers to these questions tell us a great deal about the well-being of our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we will gladly confess to you tonight how we need our Savior to speak so clearly to us. How we need such a one who is a worthy Savior to woo us to his handsome beauty, to woo us to his unending and unfailing provision, to show us the foolishness of thinking that our possessions and anything associated with a clock this side of eternity can be our hope. Oh, Lord our God, even as we sing our closing song, my worth is not in what I own. We invite the Holy Spirit to frisk our souls both tonight and in the coming days and shed from us the accretions of our idol worship, and shed from us the things that have accrued to our souls that we thought could satisfy us, but cannot. We invite you to do so, that we might lay up treasures that will never perish, even our Lord Jesus.